Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Hi, and welcome to the PT and OT Connection, a Summit Professional Education podcast. My name is Nikki Dawson, and I'm going to be your host for this podcast, Evidence-Based Rehabilitation in Dementia Care, Using Strengths to Facilitate Optimal Outcomes. And again, my name is Nikki Dawson. I'm a physical therapist. Um, I've been a PT for about um, you know 21 years and started my world in outpatient orthopedics, but have you know since moved um, over to skilled nursing, uh, where I met you know many patients with dementia uh, in my you know, geriatric experiences, and really realized that we needed to do a little bit better with these patients. And so I really tried to to learn as much as I can and use as much evidence uh, in my practice. And you know that led me to going back and getting my PhD. And I have my PhD in something called adult development and aging psychology, which is a really neat uh, complement to my PT training. It is a cross between gerontology and cognitive psychology. So my research aim is is surrounding dementia care. Uh, currently a associate professor at the University of Central Florida, and I'm the director of the Alive Lab. And that's where I do my research um, in this dementia care. So I'm hoping what we can do is you know, give you a little bit of information to help you in your daily practices with this challenging set of patients. Um, you know, first we're going to look at an overview of, of dementia and uh, that illness experience, what that looks like, and then talk, you know, briefly about, you know, why it's so important for rehab professionals to have a really good understanding of patients with dementia. We really do have this unique interaction, you know, with them that other healthcare professionals don't have, um, you know, that we need to really be able to facilitate their engagement, um, you know, to uh, be able to help them facilitate uh, their independence and really move forward in their rehab goals. And we're going to talk about using a strength-based approach to do that. You know, so we'll talk about the, a strength-based assessment and what that might look like. Um, and we've created uh, a strength-based inventory, um, you know, for clinicians to use during their evaluations or other assessments uh, to kind of help them decide, you know, what of the best practices and interventions might be best. And so we'll also talk uh, about that um, for you. So again, hoping to really be able to give you guys um, some, some really good information that you can take to the clinic, talking about some communication strategies, you know, talking about some treatment facilitators, but also just, you know, having a, a, you know, different perspective potentially on the disease process to really aid you in, you know, helping these patients. Dementia is one of those things that, you know, is often a neurodegenerative disease in many of our patients. And so sometimes, you know, that can be a little bit tricky because we as rehab professionals always want to help our patients get better. You know, we want to make them better. We want to restore their function. You know, and when our patient has a neurodegenerative disease, you know, that's it's not possible. But however, we could still use a strength-based approach and we could still focus on the things that they can still do 
really to optimize their functional independence and help keep them as good as they can be, you know, at that spot in their disease process. So we still play a crucial role and there's no stage of dementia that we can't, you know, help intervene upon. Um, so that's really what we're going to talk about during this podcast is, is what that all looks like. Now you have a resource guide, so you know, I'm not sure if you're sitting in front of your computer, um, you know, to be able to look at that. Um, but if you're not, and if you're, you know, driving in your car or, or in between patients or, you know, listening to this at the gym, you know, we'll be able, you'll be able to catch up with that resource guide later if you need to. Okay. But the first thing I really want to talk about is that dementia overview. I, I, I still have clinicians that, you know, talk about what dementia is and what it isn't and, and, you know, a little confusion surrounding that. So I want to clarify, you know, dementia is not a disease. It's not a diagnosis. It's actually a symptom, you know, of something else. So, you know, but you're going to say, but Nikki, you know, there's an ICD-10 code for dementia and, and sure there is, but there's also an ICD-10 code for difficulty walking and knee pain and shoulder pain. And these are still very, you know, nonspecific things, you know, that we have to determine what is the cause. So dementia is similar in that, uh, you know, it is a symptom of another underlying pathology. So when we're thinking about that, I oftentimes when I see, you know, the quote unquote diagnosis of dementia, it really is important to ask the question, well, why? What is causing their dementia? Um, because that really helps us answer the questions that we need, you know, which is what does our plan of care need to look like? And I learned in school that, you know, you ask a question if the answer to the question changes your plan of care. And in this case, it really does because, you know, there's two really big kind of there's a fork in the road if you will when it comes to the illnesses or conditions that cause uh you know a dementia and i think that main fork is is this a reversible dementia or is it an irreversible dementia and and so we'll talk a little bit about that because that becomes really really important the other thing that's really important to understand is that uh, dementia is not a normal part of our aging process. You know, there are some some cognitive processes that do change with normative aging, and, and that's beyond the scope of this. But, you know, if you want to reach out, I can certainly give you some resources um, about that. But the you know, dementia is, is this cluster of symptoms that actually impacts someone's daily function, whereas normative aging does not impact um, their function. You know, they might have, like I said, some, some issues with cognition, but at the end of the day, the big difference between normative aging and a dementia is, you know, that impact on ADL function or, you know, just their day-to-day -day life. And so dementias will impact that day-to-day -day function, but so it's not normal parts of aging. So I don't care if the patient's 97, you know, if they're 103, you know, if they're presenting with symptoms of dementia, we really do need to dive in and see, you know, what in the world might be causing those things. And, you know, some of the signs and symptoms that we might see depending on, you know, this, the type and the severity of the dementia are things like memory loss. We might see some changes in their communication or linguistic um, abilities, might see some changes in their attention. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, some of that uh, executive functioning, reasoning, judgment, decision-making, 
we might see some changes in their visual spatial abilities. There might be some behavioral disturbances, might be some personality or affective changes. So again, you know, not all dementias present this with all of these. You know, some have a little bit different flavor to them. It also might depend on where, again, the patient is in the, in the disease process. So it's really important to be able to discern, you know, what cognitive processes and what domains of function are being affected, um, you know, by the current presentation. So then we can kind of help figure out what's exactly causing, causing it. So when we talk about, you know, this fork in the road, the reversible dementias versus the irreversible dementias, you know, those reversible dementias are going to look like, you know, a depression um, or a delirium. You know, depression looks different in our older adults, which is why there's a geriatric depression scale. Um, you know, it has some, you know, more manifestations of somatic symptoms like malaise or pain, nonspecific um, you know, achiness or nausea, things, you know, that we may not see in our younger adults. The other big thing that we see in, in depression in our older adults is changes in cognition. Um, and so we might see some changes in their decision-making, in their problem-solving, in their memory, in their attention. Um, those might be present in, in a depression. Delirium, also very important that we'll talk about you know, because, um, you know, these are, these are acute changes that we see in cognition that are often due to an underlying medical etiology, you know, so whenever I would see it, you know, with a patient that would come in with that really nonspecific diagnosis of altered mental status, you know, that was always my first kind of trigger to think about, hmm, what can be causing that? And it was often an underlying medical condition. So sometimes when I see that, I really am kind of thinking about this delirium, you know, more than one of these irreversible dementias that we're going to talk about, these neurodegenerative diseases, you know, things like Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of, you know, neurodegenerative dementia that you're going to see. You know, we can also see things like vascular dementia. Um, we can also see, you know, this dementia, um, the Lewy body dementias. So there's the Parkinson's disease dementias, um, you know, primary progressive aphasia. Um, there's also uh, dementia with Lewy bodies, um, you know, that kind of affect different areas of the brain. Um, you know, Huntington's disease can lead to a dementia. So there's other neurodegenerative diseases, you know, that we might see. And so why is it important to be able to discern, you know, whether or not it's a reversible versus irreversible dementia? Because I said earlier, because the answer to that question will change your plan of care. Because if it's a reversible dementia and this patient has a depression or a delirium, you know, those are treatable causes. And so if we can, um, you know, mitigate um, that depression and, and treat that, or we can find the underlying cause, uh, you know, of that delirium and treat it, those cognitive symptoms will subside and they'll return to their baseline function. You know, that looks very different than a patient who has Alzheimer's disease or who has Parkinson's disease dementia, you know, where that disease process is likely going to progress um, and is not going to reverse. So in the one case where we have these you know, patients that have depression and delirium, you know, we're going to rehabilitate and we're going to remediate those symptoms and we're going to work on returning to prior level of function, you know, versus our patients with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease dementia or a frontotemporal dementia, you know, which are progressive neurodegenerative diseases. This is in a case where our job is really to compensate um, for, you know, the deficits that are there 
are using this strength-based approach uh, in efforts to maximize their functional independence regardless of their disease process. You know, there's going to be so many things that we're going to be able to outline that they can still do that that's going to be really important for us to highlight and use in our treatment plans, okay? So, you know, our first role in all of these patients is that differential diagnosis because so many times we do get that very nonspecific, you know, diagnosis of, of dementia. And so, you know, especially if you're in acute care or in skilled nursing, I mean, shooting all of them really in home care, um, you know, you're, you may be the first one to see um, these symptoms and you need to be an integral part of that rehabilitation team, you know, that medical geriatric team to really have these conversations about what are causing these cognitive symptoms. You know, we have lots of tools available to us uh, to be able to, um, to know you know, what's going on. A lot of it will have to do with time of onset. So, you know, when you think about a dementia, an irreversible neurodegenerative disease, you know, that's going to take months and years to progress, right? A delirium, on the other hand, we might see changes, rapid changes in hours, you know, or even days. This is that patient that you know, you see them on a Friday and they're doing great and you're walking up and down the hall and you're doing some agility training with them. You're doing great strength training, you know, and then you come in on Monday and they can't even get out of bed or they're so confused that they don't even, you know, they don't know who you are. You know, this is not a progression of a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease. You know, this is definitely something that's much more acute and your first go-to should be that delirium. And then there's that thing in the middle, depression. You know, this takes weeks to months. You know, so this is this is something that is, you know, still still a rel- relatively quick onset because it's not this months to years, you know, but it looks a little different than that really, really acute onset. You know, this is something that, you know, over the last, you know, few weeks, my mom has been having some troubles and, you know, it really is important now to be a little bit of a detective to find out, you know, what happened you know, a few weeks ago that might be leading to these changes. And the nice thing is, is we have some tools available to us um, that we can use. You know, we have the geriatric depression scale short form. It's it's a really quick 15 item, yes, no question, um, that can really help you screen for some of these depressive symptoms. Uh, you know, right on the bottom of that geriatric depression, it helps you determine the screen. You know, if they score a five, you know, out of 15, that's concerning. If they score anything above a nine or a 10, that's really concerning. And so now you have some tools available to you, some objective measures, you know, to be able to take to the rest of the medical team to show that this might be something reversible uh, that we can treat during our time with the patient. Now, with the delirium, we even have some, some, we have some amazing tools to us. The, the one that I really highly recommend most is the CAM, the Confusion Assessment Method. Um, you know, this is going to take you through, you know, kind of the symptoms of a delirium and, and see if any of those behaviors or, um, you know, signs are present or not present. 
And it really walks you through being able to identify whether or not there's a delirium present. Now the CAM ICU, you know, is a little bit different. It's a different measure than the CAM. I mean, they're, they're, they're two different measures. And the CAM ICU actually has a 100% specificity and sensitivity to detect delirium, which is, which is pretty amazing. Um, you know, and, and they're really easy to find if you just go and you Google, you know, CAM PDF, um, or CAM ICU PDF, they'll pop right up for you. And this way, you know, you're not arguing with a nursing staff or a physician or a family, you know, it's not your opinion. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm so I'm not sure what's going on here. You know, you're able to say, you know, that you administered the CAM and there's a delirium present and that you need to refer that patient or, you know, have a conversation with that physician so everybody can determine what is causing that delirium to aid that delirium, you know, to be cleared. You know, because one of one of the huge issues is when we don't clear these deliriums, guys, you know, it really puts these patients behind the eight ball. You know, they have a 15-fold a uh, increased risk for walking dependence. You know, they're twice as likely to be institutionalized um, or actually have a mortality, you know, due to this delirium opposed to other patients, you know, who aren't presenting that same way. And so these are patients that we really need to screen out and make sure that we're identifying that they're a reversible dementia in that they can receive the proper treatment. This is probably one of the most frustrating areas um, for us. But like I said, using these objective measures such as the geriatric depression scale short form and the CAM can really help reduce some of that frustration because you have objective measures, um, valid, reliable measures that are helping you identify these patients. You know, so if it's not one of those, you know, it could be one of the neurodegenerative diseases. And, and oftentimes, you know, those diagnoses can take a little longer. You oftentimes will have, you know, a geriatrician or a neurologist um, involved in, in that process because oftentimes there could be a mixed dementia. Um, so there needs to be some some potential neuropsych testing, some, some scans, uh, some other blood work potentially, maybe even some lumbar punctures to look at their cerebral spinal fluid, you know, to really help diagnose properly, you know, where, where, where that pathology might lie. And I think, you know, as a rehab professional, it becomes really important because that really will help us, you know, with our goals, uh, with, with aiding the family and the patient with understanding the trajectory potentially of their illness, what the, what is the rehab potential here? What is our long-term goals? You know, cause when I have a patient who has Alzheimer's disease, I'm going to be involved in that patient's care long-term, you know, I'm going to come in and out of that patient's care because there's going to be points where they need me. Um, you know, so that patient kind of has me forever and I'm able to have a conversation with that family about being one of their support team members, you know, and then I can also help them uh, identify resources through, you know, something like the Alzheimer's Association, one of those local chapters, um, you know, or other places where they can get support, um, you know, as caregivers and as patients to, you know, be able to really be as successful as they can through the trajectory of that illness. Okay. So, you know, once we've kind of determined what's going on, you know, we're going to include them now in, in that rehab process. And, you know, I, I think talking about some of the common barriers that we see, um, you know, might be, 
related to the cognitive processes that we're going to talk about. So, you know, as we look at, you know, these common barriers, I think it's first and foremost, really important to understand that when it comes to rehabilitation in our patients with dementia, that they can absolutely benefit from rehabilitation. And again, there's no stage of the disease process that we can't intervene upon. So whether they're in the early stages, in the middle stages, or in the late stages, you know, we can still intervene. And we'll talk a little bit about what our roles might look like, you know, depending on the stage of their disease process. Okay. Um, I think some of those common barriers, you know, are going to, to be about following directions, you know, really being able to engage in conversation to help aid you in, you know, the things that they want and they need and, and their goals, um, you know, that can be challenging and, and also the follow through. Um, you know, so I'll give you a, a pro tip here. Your patients with dementia probably have some memory problems, right? That's not rocket science to know that, but that can still frustrate us a great deal because we need them to be able to do things and, you know, uh, that we've recommended or to practice things that we've worked on in rehab, you know, and when they're, when they're challenged in those, in those areas, it can be frustrating. So we have to have um, facilitators and we have to have compensatory strategies available to us to make that not that big of a deal. And so hopefully when we talk about these barriers of them following directions, participating, you know, in conversation and being able to tell us things, you know, the follow through, um, that really at, at the end of this podcast, I hope that those aren't barriers because I have not found those to be barriers, you know, when we're really relying on their strengths, um, and then really just understanding that we need to compensate for, for some of those challenges, Okay, because they can participate in their care, um, you know, because of the strengths that are available to them. They can improve in therapy. There's lots of literature, you know, to show that that individuals with dementia can absolutely improve, you know, with skilled rehabilitation um, and they can actually learn. You know, the thing is, is they do learn differently. Um, and so, you know, what we've been taught as, you know, PTs and OTs is that it's best to use trial and error learning and it's best to use explicit learning. It's best to use random practice, all of these things. And that's absolutely true if your patient doesn't have dementia, if they don't have memory problems, you know, because the problem is when you think about a trial and error learning, you know, those, those trials are stored in short-term memory. And again, I just gave you the pro tip of patients with dementia usually have memory problems. So they're not going to be able to, you know, kind of use that information to adjust their behavior. So they learn differently. We can't rely on that explicit learning. So when we talk about strengths, we're going to talk about implicit learning and we're going to talk about procedural learning and procedural memory. And that is how our patients with dementia learn. Um, so we have to understand that they can absolutely do it. We just have to teach a little bit different. We have to teach them the way that they learn. Okay. So what interventions, you know, do we have available to us? There's, there are some pharmacological interventions. It, it's typically, you know, cholinesterase inhibitors um, that are used like Exelon and Aricept. Um, you know, these, these don't actually do anything to the disease process, and they actually don't even increase the amount of acetylcholine that's being produced by the patient. What it's actually doing is just keeping that acetylcholine around a little bit longer. So it's asking cholinesterase, which is the enzyme that cleans up, uh, you know, the acetylcholine after we've used it, um, to just keep that acetylcholine around a little bit longer um, and make it available to the patient. So 
you know, it's very interesting that, you know, many of the systematic reviews and other, uh, other research regarding pharmacological interventions, there's very mixed results and they're not really found to be very effective. And this is why, is because they're not really doing a whole lot other than just keeping the acetylcholine around a little bit longer. Um, and so in many patients, that's really not enough to see, you know, any type of change um, in, their, in their function. Um, the, you know, the other big med that we'll see is, is something called a Nemenda. Um, this works on another neurotransmitter called glutamate, you know, which kind of helps with some cellular protection uh, by keeping levels of calcium down and, you know, really helping try to, um, you know, keep that cell membrane intact. Um, so those are our pharmacological interventions. And, and our non-farm interventions, which is where we fall, are really have a lot of evidence to support them. You know, so things like exercise, cognitive rehabilitation techniques, different counseling strategies, support groups, these things have a lot of evidence to support their improvements in individuals with dementia. Um, you know, I actually just presented with, with one of my students at the combined sections meeting in, in um, you know, this past February in San Diego. And, and we did a systematic review actually comparing pharmacological interventions to exercise in the domain of cognition. So looking, you know, specifically at cognition and how these drugs impact cognition in patients with Alzheimer's disease and, you know, exercise impacts cognition in individuals with Alzheimer's disease. And what was fascinating is we actually found that exercise actually improves cognition better in individuals with early to moderate dementia than any of these drugs. And there's far less side effects. And so, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting that exercise, physical therapy, occupational therapy, cognitive rehabilitation is not the first line of treatment. It should be. You know, the, the impact that it can have on a patient and their caregivers is enormous when, it, when compared to, you know, the, the smaller, much smaller effect sizes or even no effects of these pharmacological interventions, which is given out, you know, pretty regularly. And, and they do have lots of side effects that are concerning. So we really need to better understand and advocate, you know, for the, the work that we're doing with these patients with dementia, because we can have such a bigger impact just through exercise and through, you know, compensatory rehabilitation, you know, cognitive rehabilitation strategies and other things, you know, than any of the drugs would. Okay. So that's really, really important for us to be super confident in that knowledge so that we can be having these conversations that there is absolutely no reason that we shouldn't be doing exercise, you know, and physical rehabilitation with these patients. Okay. Now, again, our roles, depending on their, you know, where they sit in the disease process are going to be different. You know, in the earlier stages, you know, these folks might still be living at home. They might still be working. They might still be driving. You know, they're going to be having some challenges potentially with their IADLs and work performance. So things like financial management, medication management, you know, higher level cooking and, and, and home management tasks, you know, so our job for these folks is keeping them at the highest level possible for as long as possible. You know, it really is to engage them at also almost a normal level of rehabilitation, you know, with some of those compensatory strategies for those higher level functions like med management and financial management and, and some of those things. So using some of the techniques we talk about, you know, to help them compensate for those. You know, now as we move more into the middle stages, 
you know, we're going to see some challenges with our typical ADLs, like, you know, bathing and, and dressing and, um, you know, some of those more basic activities of daily living. And so our job at this level is to help maintain those as best we can. And, and this is an area where, you know, it always fascinates me that, you know, families and even lots of medical professionals, they think the best way to help these individuals is to have everything done for them. You know, a patient starts to have trouble with, you know, showering. Well, let's get them a home health aid and let's get them, you know, get somebody in there to, to, to do it for them. And that's actually not the, that's the worst thing we can actually do for them. You know, there's lots of compensatory strategies that we can use at this level. Like, you know, thinking about this is where the person environment fit really become crucial. So thinking about cognitive load, you know, and that patient's abilities. So let's think about this. You know, this is just a, a, an example of something we'll talk about later is, you know, they're having trouble with showering. Well, why? You know, is it a physical issue? Is it the person or is it the environment? You know, so can they not stand? Can they not get into the tub? Can they not do those things? You know, that's one level of rehabilitation. But the other is what if they're able to do all of those things and they still can't do it? Well, then let's figure out what's going on in their environment, you know, to really kind of uh, address that PE fit. Because I might not be able to do anything with the person at this point because, again, their cognition is diminishing, right? So physically they're okay. They're able to do all the things. I'm not able to remediate that cognition. So I have to change the environment to match where they're, where they are, right? Because if, if that PE fit, you know, doesn't, doesn't match, then we're going to have challenges. So let's think about cognitive load in the shower. This patient walks in to the shower. Have you ever seen these showers? Like how many bottles of shampoo does one person actually need, right? You know, so that can be very overwhelming and confusing for a patient with dementia when they get into a shower and there's seven bottles, you know, which one do they pick? How do they know? What do they do? You know, so we as therapists can really help start to alter the environment. And I really would love to see us do this more. We're very good at addressing the person, you know, through strength training, balance training, range of motion. But I would love to see us do more about compensating for this cognitive load in the environment. And we're going to talk about some techniques and some strategies, you know, to help us do that. Okay. And that also will include lots of family education because, again, the families really do want to do what's best for their loved one. They just don't know what that looks like. So they think doing everything for them is the best way to do it. And so we have to help them understand this concept of person environment fit and help them understand cognitive load and, and find out where their loved one's having you know difficulties and help them mitigate some of those difficulties. Okay. Now, finally, in the late stages, you know, when, when we have somebody who's like, you know, maybe end stage, you know, oftentimes this is about preventing um, really bad consequences from their, you know, the changes in the disease, like contractures, skin breakdown. So we're going to be doing lots of positioning, lots of family training. We might be changing their diet. You know, there's going to be things, you know, that we're going to be doing that are definitely not rehabilitative. These are definitely going to be compensatory and preventative um, to, again, try to keep this person as functional 
for as long as they can because maybe the family has never had to transfer their loved one before you know they go to church every week or they go to you know somewhere for dinner every week and they've always been able to get in and out of the car by themselves you know we've never had to worry about positioning them in a wheelchair or doing these things you know but now it might change into to allow that person to still you know, be active and be able to engage in those activities, you know, we have to train that family how to do a transfer or we have to teach them about wheelchair positioning, you know, so there's no skin breakdown and that patient doesn't have any pain. So these are going to be the things. So again, hopefully you can see that we can intervene at every stage in the, in the disease process, but what our interventions are, are very different um, depending on where they are in that disease process. Okay. And to help us best, you know, be able to do our, do our best is we have to take a strength-based approach when it comes to uh, individuals with dementia. So, you know, the strength-based literature comes out of all the social sciences, the counseling literature, social, social work, um, you know, psychology, all of these places. So again, where my PhD in psychology is super helpful is, you know, integrating this and, I didn't really see a whole lot of this in physical rehabilitation. You know, we still, you know, have a, a deficit model or the traditional medical model. You know, there's some stuff coming out about psychologically informed practice, and it's kind of where this strength-based approach should fit. And what this strength-based approach does is it helps us better understand how to work with these 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 clients who have chronic illness or neurodegenerative diseases where, you know, their deficits are, are very clear, you know, but they may not be, you know, we might not be able to remediate those. And so we are kind of stuck. Well, again, looking at all of the, all of the things that we still have available to us through this strength-based approach allows us to develop a treatment plan you know, to allow that patient to stay engaged and be an active participant regardless of their diagnosis or deficits. So benefits of that is really going to be to, you know, present our, our patients with tasks that they can be successful with, you know, that they can progress with. It gives them purpose and meaning um, and challenges them, you know, and what we know about rehabilitation is the human body responds to being challenged. And so this, this really helps us frame, you know, what those challenges might look like. So let's talk about what, what basic research, you know, provides us regarding um, strengths. Uh, in, in individuals that have dementia. So we sometimes make the assumption that folks with dementia, you know, everything declines. And, and that is just categorically not true. You know, there are many, there are many uh, domains of cognition and many cognitive processes that actually remain intact and, and you know, provide us a lot of, of um provide us lots of avenues to, to aid in that plan of care development. So the first one is attention. So our patients with dementia do have um, relatively intact focused attention. Now, what that means is, you know, we have to help present the, you know, the task to them. You know, we have to allow it to be right in front of them. Um, you know, we might need to decrease some of the distractors. But the beauty is if you can hook them and engage them, they will be able to participate. 
And so, you know, when we think about focused attention, like maybe in a 15 year old athlete, yeah, I want you to think about that. Your patient with dementia has just as good of attention as your 15 year old athlete, you know? So again, you have to gain their attention and maintain their attention because you have to hook them in, right? What's interesting to them, what's meaningful to them. And, you know, it's the same for your 97 year old patient with dementia, you have to be able to find, you know, that meaningful activity that is going to keep them engaged. So let's say, for example, you know that your patient, you know, loves playing cards, or you know that they are a retired school teacher, or you know that they were a carpenter or love carpentry. These are things that really help you easily hook in, you know, these patients. And this will be part of the strength-based inventory that we're going to talk about here in a few is to kind of help you identify some of these, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit that can help you engage these patients with dementia. Oftentimes asking their families, um, you know, kind of what do they, what did they like to do? Um, what did they engage in at home? Or even sometimes you have to even go back to before the disease process, because again, oftentimes when people have dementia, they're not engaging in anything because, you know, some of that initiation ends up going away, but it doesn't mean that they still don't enjoy those things. So oftentimes it's about talking to families about what did they used to love um, and, and being able to use those to garner their attention, okay? Procedural memory or implicit memory is going to be our best friend. You know, this is the things that we learned by repetition. So these are really our routines, our habits, you know, how we get dressed in the morning, how you drive to work, you know, how you do many of the things that you do are really kind of hardwired into your procedural memory. And so you don't have to think, you, you know, you do it automatically. I, I, have you guys ever done something and you're like, I don't know why I did that. It's just because that's how we do things. And when we can engage our patients with dementia into things that require procedural memory, again, they're able to do it without that cognitive load requires much less of a cognitive load. So again, when you think about somebody who is a carpenter, you know, not only are you going to hook their attention by doing some woodworking or handing them, you know, uh, some nuts and bolts or something like that, but you're also going to tap into their procedural memory because how many times have they done that? They've done that thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And so it's almost a motor memory activity. You know, this can be actually magic sometimes. Like if you're having trouble, you know, getting a patient to stand up because maybe you're trying to, you know, arm in arm them, you know, with another clinician and then you put a walker in front of them and they magically, you know, stand up and start walking, that's tapping into procedural memory. And so being able to know, you know, how they did things and, and what they used to complete tasks can be very helpful. And this is another place engaging the family can really aid you in your treatment. And then the beauty is, as we're going to talk about, you know, types of learning, procedural learning is something that our patients with dementia are still also able to do. When we talk about airless learning and spaced retrieval, you know, those are going to be techniques that rely on this implicit memory. So it's going to bypass short-term memory, which is where our patients with dementia have the most trouble, and it's going to allow us to teach them through repetition, you know, rather than trial and error learning. 
Um, so repetition is going to be a beautiful thing. So, you know, really engaging your patients in activities that they've done for a really long time, that's where you're going to have most success rather than trying novel um, and new ways of doing things that ends up being a little bit more challenging. It's not that we can't do it. We just have to compensate for it or teach it, you know, whereas if we do things that they've always been doing, you know, it makes it a whole lot easier. So thinking about exercise, for instance, and we'll talk about this later, you know, if I use sit to stands as my strength training, you know, rather than putting them on a piece of equipment or, you know, using a different type of exercise to do that strength training, it's going to be much better because my patient with dementia knows how to get up and down out of a chair because they've been doing that their whole life. So that's relying on procedural memory. Okay. Reading also remains intact, um, you know, later into the disease process. And when I say that, I mean, I don't mean that they're, you know, reading novels for comprehension, but we are able to use reading to compensate for some short-term memory. So, you know, let's say they aren't sure where their clothes are. You know, we can label their closet or label their bathroom or label things, um, you know, or we can also write them scripts, you know. So let's say that, you know, and, and we're going to talk about all these external memory aids, you know, but if, if an individual maybe has forgotten how to get dressed, you know, it, it's kind of they're moving through the disease process, you know, we can actually write down the steps of getting dressed for them and they can actually read that and comprehend that and be able to perform it from, you know, the script. And that can be really, really helpful through our, through our, our rehab. Okay. And then aspects of language remain relatively intact. And this is really nice because I know you know this, our patients with dementia can absolutely tell you what they want and what they feel. Absolutely. You know, but oftentimes it's spontaneous. You know, they're telling us, but when we ask them a question, they have some challenges. Well, let's go back to that PE fit. Oftentimes the questions that we ask have such a high cognitive load that that's why they're having difficulty answering them. So when we talk about some of our communication strategies, you know, that's really the big thing that we're going to think about is, you know, thinking about the cognitive load of the questions that we, that we're asking. Okay. And then the other thing is learning by modeling, you know, that relies on the strength of left, right orientation or some visual spatial processing that still remains intact. So let's say if we have a very complex instruction that we're trying to, um, you know, instruct in our patient, we're doing it verbally and they're having troubles with it. Don't you guys just demonstrate it for them? Yeah, you demonstrate it for them and they can do it because they can model you. Um, and so modeling is a huge, huge benefit for us. And so, you know, we definitely use modeling as one of our visual cues in, um, in our teaching and, and, you know, in our rehab. The final thing I want to talk about is emotional memory. So emotional memory actually fits into procedural memory. It's a type of implicit or procedural memory. Um, it's part of it. Um, but I pull it out separate because it's really, really important in working with our patients with dementia. Because here's the thing. Your patients with dementia don't know who you are. They probably don't even remember ever meeting you before. They certainly don't know that you're a PT or an OT or a PTA or a CODA. But let me tell you, they sure do know whether or not they like you, don't they? They know how you make them feel. And so that becomes really important in our interactions with our patients with dementia is making sure that we keep things as positive as we can or at minimum neutral. 
You know, we can't ever allow a negative emotional memory to form. And you guys know what I'm talking about, because have you ever been with a patient with dementia, like in the hospital or in a, a skilled nursing room or whatever, and then there's this nurse or a, a nursing assistant that they really don't like, right? And that person walks in the room and the whole energy of your patient with dementia changes, right? And if you ask them who that is, they may not know, but they're like, yeah, but I don't like them. You know, if you guys want to have some fun, if you've never done this before, take your laptop and go sit at nurse's station row, right? Because most of the times all the people sitting at nurse's station row are pe people with dementia uh, and just watch them because they have an opinion about every single person that walks by. And usually they're spot on. Like this is a great way to develop some rapport with your patient with dementia because you're like, I know, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And it's fascinating, but because that emotional memory lives in implicit memory, it's actually still very available to our person with dementia. So how we make them feel is so important, which goes back to the importance, or I mean, I don't even know how to stress it enough, the critical nature of using a strength-based approach in your rehab, because you have to allow them to be successful, um, or else they're just not going to enjoy or like their time with you, which is gonna make it very difficult for you to engage them. So when you think about the easiest patients that you have with, with dementia, right? They're the ones that love you, because they'll do anything you want. You know, so you gotta take that and kind of bottle it and use it on all of your patients. But really the reason that they like you is because you treat them with dignity, respect, you know how to work with them. And so if you can do that with all of your patients, you're gonna be really, really successful. And so I already told you that, you know, what we're going to need to compensate for is memory, short-term memory, uh, prospective memory, all of these things. And the nice thing is, is, is using the strengths, we have some techniques already, right? We have things like implicit learning. We have things like reading so we can label things, right? We have modeling. We could show them things. So there's lots of ways that we could get around these, these memory deficits. The other thing is there's some executive function stuff like problem solving, um, you know, that really needs some compensation. So we need to structure things for our patients with dementia. Again, that trial and error thing is not going to work. You know, they can't really figure out the best solution. So we really need to structure things for them. Um, and then finally, orientation is really challenging for them. So where they are, what day it is, you know, kind of what's happened to them. Um, those are going to be things that are going to need to be compensated for, uh, you know, quite a bit as well. And again, what we can do is use the strength-based inventory, you know, that we developed um, through our, our lead program, which is leveraging existing abilities in dementia. You know, um, we use a strength-based inventory to help therapists identify that patient's strengths. So you guys have that in your resources. Um, I think it's slide 11 is, or slide 12 is the actual inventory. Um, and, and that really gives, gives you the ability to go through different categories of function and to be able to start thinking about what strengths and what, what, you know, what assets and abilities that that patient has that you can use during, you know, during your treatment. Okay. So moving, using this strength-based approach, what we're going to talk about is, you know, those communication strategies. We also have, you know, different treatment facilitators like airless learning, um, you know, learning by modeling, 
compensating using external memory aids. And then we have some other best practices available to us too, cognitive task analysis and Montessori-based activities, you know, that can be really, really helpful in engaging our patients with dementia as well as, you know, identifying that PE fit. So using cognitive task analysis to identify whether or not that cognitive load, you know, is a little too high. So I want to briefly talk about, you know, some of these communication strategies, things like patience and acceptance, you know, giving your patient enough time to respond, you know, and sometimes, you know, that may take 15 to 30 seconds. And if you've realized that your patient with dementia has a 15 second processing delay, you know, that's something that is really important to tell everybody else. I mean, that patient should have that, you know, stamped on their forehead um, because that tells you that when you ask a patient with dementia to do something, you really need to be silent for about 15 seconds to allow them to process. Also, keeping it short and simple. We don't want to increase cognitive load in our instructions that we give them or just in our, you know, daily talk because, you know, that can kind of overload that um, cognitive ability and just really confuse the patient and not allow them to engage at their best. You know, thinking about how we ask questions. So there's two kind of big things to think about here is rephrasing our questions to rely on short-term, or not rely on short-term memory, but more of the immediate memory. So let's think about that. This is probably one of the hardest ones for me because we're so social. You know, we like to engage with our patients. So we say things like, you know, how was lunch? How was bingo? How was your daughter's this weekend? How did you sleep? Here's the problem. They don't know. You know, that, that information is not available to them. And so it frustrates, confuses, even can cause some anxiety in our patients with dementia, or we're just going to get incorrect information because they don't want to tell us they don't know. So they just make some stuff up, you know, so rather than doing that, you know, we can rely on immediate memory you know, asking them about the current situation that they're in, where they are now, how they are now, you know, and they're going to be able to engage much, much better in that conversation. So let's think about how we might do this, you know, in a therapy situation. So let's say that I added an intervention for my patient to reduce their, their back pain or their knee pain, right? Well, the only person that can tell me about that is the patient with dementia, right? And so when they come back two days later, yeah, I'm going to be able to say, you know, that thing I added, was that helpful? Here's the problem. They're going to be like, I was here two days ago. They're not even going to know. They're certainly not going to remember the intervention. And they're not going to remember what their pain looked like over the last few days. And so this can be a challenge. However, when I know these things, I can, you know, prepare for it. So I can ask my patient with dementia about their pain right now. There's many valid and reliable pain measures for patients with dementia. So I can ascertain their pain level or their pain behaviors right this second. And then what I can do is I can train their caregiver, you know, to reassess their pain every six hours or twice a day or whenever I, I want, right? And ask that caregiver to record that and bring it next session. And then the next session, I have a pain log, you know, because I knew what they were going to be challenged with. I knew what strengths they had available to them. And so I used that to get the information that I needed. The other thing about questions is that we, we need to narrow choices when we're asking questions. When we ask a question like, what do you want to do? Or where do you want to eat? Or, you know, you know where do you want to go? Those are questions have such high cognitive load. So you know this too, right? You, after a long day, you go home, your husband or wife or kids or whatever are like, where do you want to eat? And, and you're like, I don't care, 
right? That's what we say. I don't care. And then they say something like, well, that's great. Let's go to Olive Garden. You're like, no, what else? And they're like, okay, let's go to Red Lobster. No, what? See, you do care. You didn't want to think about it because that question has such a high cognitive load. You might even say when they say, what do you want to eat? You're like, give me some choices. See, you already, you're, you know, you have that metacognitive ability to say, that's too hard of a question. Give me some choices. Well, we have to do the same thing with our patient with dementia if we want them to participate. So we can't just say, what do you want to do in therapy today? Because when they say nothing, right? And you're like, well, that's not an option. Well, then what'd you ask me for? Then you need to give them viable options. You need to act, like, you know, say things like, you know, do you want to throw a ball with me in here or do you want to go for a walk outside? You know, give them options that are viable, that no matter what they say, that it's good. Okay, that's really, really crucial. And then also connecting with your patient with dementia that can help formulate some of that emotional memory, you know, going to their long term memory, if you knew that they were a carpenter, or you knew that they had military service, you know, you knew that they were a university professor, you knew that they played sports, these are things that you can go into that long term memory that they know, and you can talk to them about and, and connect with them, you know, or if you know that they have a dog, you can talk to them about their dog, you know, things that that are available to them you know, to really help you build that rapport. Okay. We've already talked about implicit or airless learning. This is critical, you know, really getting out of that practice of that random practice, trial and error learning, and really using repetition and using blocked practice with these patients. You know, motor learning in our patients with dementia is actually similar to healthy controls. And so, you know, doing the same thing, the right thing, that's what airless learning is, is doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, the correct way your patient with dementia will learn. We do have a technique available to us called spaced retrieval. Now, spaced retrieval is a way to help us kind of shove it in there a little bit faster. Um, and what spaced retrieval does is it capitalizes on that procedural memory and allows you to um, expand the interval in which they can recall. Now, I, there, there's, there's a few different... Um, um, publications out there that can help you. You know, there's a there's a book um, by by Jennifer Brush on spaced retrieval. We also have a um, uh, an article in Jerry Notes from May of 2020, uh, myself and Ashley Trapezano, that really outlines spaced retrieval. You know, it's really difficult to teach it on a podcast. You know, but what you do is you start with a target question and a target response, and you get the person to learn that. So let's say that I want the patient to um, lock their wheelchair before they stand up. I'm going to say, Frank, um, before you stand up, I need you to lock your wheelchair. And then you, you ask them immediately, what, what do you do before you stand up? And he's going to say, I lock my wheelchair. And then what we do is we expand that interval. And, you know, depending on where the patient is in the disease process, you can use a pretty aggressive one. Maybe I wait a minute and I ask again. Or if they're you know, pretty far in the disease process, I might wait something like five or ten seconds. And then I ask again, Frank, what do you do before you stand up? I lock my wheelchair. Well, great. So now that gives me the okay to expand that interval a little bit further. And now I'm going to say, maybe I'm going to wait 30 seconds, or if I'm being pretty aggressive, I'm going to wait five minutes and I'm going to say, Frank, what do you do before you stand up? I lock my wheelchair. Good job. You know, and now again, I can expand that interval again. So at that next expanded interval, let's say that I say, Frank, what do you do before you stand up? And he says, push up from the chair. 
you know, that's when we need to do a correction there and take a step backwards and do that airless learning and say, actually, Frank, before you stand up, I need you to lock your wheelchair. What do you do before you stand up? I lock my wheelchair. And then he's telling you that we need to take a step backwards and we need to do another repetition at the previous interval. And then you're going to continue to move forward until they're successful you know, multiple times um, at your beginning of treatment. So let's say on that first treatment, I get them to maybe a four minute or a 10 minute interval. You know, that next day, I just start my treatment with the question, Frank, what do you do before you stand up? And if he's able to say, I lock my wheelchair, you're really on your way to being successful with that implicit learning. You know, if he's not successful, you're going to have to, again, kind of keep going with your spaced retrieval, um, you know, until they're able to get it, you know, without your cueing. Okay. And like I said, there's some publications out there and some articles that can kind of help you um, understand how to do spaced retrieval a little bit better, but it really is an important aspect of our treatment. You know, we talked about learning by modeling already. Um, you know, that's a lot of demonstration. We've also talked a little bit about external memory aids. I'll give you um, also a really great resource by Michelle Bourgeois. Um, it's called Memory and Communication Aids for People with Dementia. It's a book that I keep on my bookshelf. I, you know, it's really easy to get on Amazon or some other bookstore. You know, and it gives you different ways to enhance conversation, orientation, um, by, by, you know, again, really compensating for some of those short-term memory uh, losses. Using things like memory wallets, memory books, you know, we can use um, table tents, planners, uh, reminder cards, um, you know, using a lot of the digital assistants or reminders on their phones um, can be really helpful in those situations. You know, we can also use, um, you know, written instruction cards like we were talking about earlier, making scripts, you know, how to make a cup of coffee. Um, you know, so allowing that and we keep that like hung up on the refrigerator. So when that patient goes to make their cup of coffee in the morning, you know, they're able to do that. Okay. Cognitive task analysis. You know, we kind of talked about this already and with the shower example earlier, but let's take something like a coffee, the coffee maker or doing laundry. You know, when we look at a, you know, a washing machine, it's very complex. And so using cognitive task analysis to break that down or even just look at how complex that task is and how can we make it easier, you know, maybe we kind of cover up all the lettering, you know, and all we do is we put a little arrow and we write the instruction card that says, you know, turn the knob to the arrow and press start. So that's using cognitive task analysis to reduce that cognitive load, you know, to be able to help our patients be more independent with those ADL tasks, okay? Um, we can write, um, you know, a list of their preferred activities because sometimes, again, initiation can be difficult and patients with dementia may not remember what TV shows they like or, you know, what books they like to read. And so we can help write those things down. We can also give them some sorting tasks and some other things, you know, that kind of fall under the Montessori-based activities. You know, Montessori-based activities, you know, are um, really activities that provide focus and meaning and some socialization, um, 
you know, some examples. Cameron Camp has a, some, some really nice resources for Montessori-based activities with people with dementia. You know, things like the treasure hunt, shape sorting, you know, hanging clothes, um, the north-south state sort. So different things, again, that really provide that challenge and meaning to individuals. And I use them to augment my treatment. So, you know, they really were developed for activities and recreational therapists. Um, but I use them a lot, you know, to, again, give that attention, give that purpose. So a north-south state sort, instead of doing it sitting, you know, I may actually put a line on the wall and have them reach, you know, have them walk, have them transfer, have them turn in efforts to use those things. Okay. Um, so, so again, that's going to fall under that Montessori based activities. And then we also talked about cognitive task analysis. You know, the final thing I want to touch on, and we briefly touched on it already is exercise. You know, this is where my main area of research is. Um, I have several articles published from an intervention that we developed, um, doing moderate intensity strength and balance training with people with dementia in their homes. And what we found are using these techniques that we're talking about, you know, we were able to engage individuals in moderate intensity strength and balance training. So it was really important though for us in your, in your resources, you're going to see some of the strength-based techniques that we use, things like keeping it short and simple. So being very clear in our verbal instructions, you know, to keep it as short and simple as we can, you know, learning by modeling, also demonstrating, um, using external memory aids as needed. And using that narrowing choices to allow them to choose the exercise that they wanted to do to help them engage, you know, at the best way that we could. And so we really were successful. And, and, and you know, this included patients from, you know, if you're familiar with the mini mental, that is out of 30. Anything below a 24 is abnormal. Anything less than 19 is moderate. And anything less than 12 is severe. You know, we actually had three patients, you know, or three participants in our study that fell in the severe category. And they were actually able to to complete the entire uh, protocol and demonstrate really, really good success. So, you know, again, there's no level that we can't intervene upon. It's about addressing the strengths and using the strengths that they have available to them um, in efforts to develop our plan of care. Um, so I think that that is, you know, that that is really, really important. And again, understanding that they can and will succeed, you know, with your guidance, um, you know, really being patient with them and understanding that their disease process, you know, is really what's causing most of the issues that they're, that, you know, you're seeing and, and that they're trying as hard as they can. And I think another big piece of advice is if you're, if you're feeling that you're getting frustrated, step away. You know, because you don't want that a negative emotional memory to form. The nice thing is, is they're going to forget and you could come back in 10 minutes and start all over again, you know, but don't let that negative emotional memory form. You know, so patients with dementia are really fun. Um, they're very challenging, which I love, and, and they're really a great patient population to work with. So hopefully this podcast gave you, you know, some, some information on how to overcome some of those barriers that we talked about, you know, the following the directions, um, you know, by using some of the techniques that we talked about, things like keeping it short and simple, learning by modeling, using external memory aids, overcoming those conversational barriers, using patience and acceptance, changing how you ask questions, and then connecting with them.
and then understanding that limited follow through we can overcome with changing how we teach you know using airless learning implicit learning spaced retrieval um, and also external memory aids and then engage those families they really want to know you know what they can do to help their family member um, and so by engaging them um, you know I don't think you'll have any difficulties so thank you guys so much. And if you, um, you know, have any questions, feel free to reach out. You know, my email is nicole.dawson at ucf.edu. I'm at the University of Central Florida. Always happy to answer questions or provide any more resources that I can. Um, thank you so much for your attention and, and good luck with, with, with these patients. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.